Hello and welcome back to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we aim to keep you up to date with the latest trends, drivers and moves in livestock, grain and oilseed and fibre markets. I'm Olivia Agar, thanks for tuning in to episode 203. We're heading overseas today, taking the opportunity to call in on Robert Herman while he's travelling through Spain to of course talk agriculture and get a view on their farming systems and the similarities and differences to Australia. Before we do get into the episode though, some quick highlights from the markets this week. A few salyard reports noted a definite transition away from old season lambs as those new season lamb numbers start to build, but the southern spring flush is yet to really kick into gear, so the lamb market has been pretty changeable over the last few weeks and supply has been disrupted with the public holidays and the very wet conditions in parts, but the supply and demand balance will be a delicate one this spring. On the positive side for export demand though, the Australian dollar hit a low of 64 US cents earlier in the week before sliding back up to 65 by the end of the week. So a lower Australian dollar generally improves our terms of trade as products are looking more attractively priced overseas. But on the flip side to that, we know it does mean we've got higher costs of inputs, which we know are already stretched. Broadly affecting ag commodities this week has also been economic headwinds. So crude oil is a really good barometer for economic health. And after peaking at 110 US dollars a barrel, it's now below 80. So for grain, that slowing economic growth is weighing against the possibility of a supply squeeze should the Black Sea Grain Corridor fail. So there are these competing forces at play, but more on that next week. I'll leave it there today. Enjoy the episode. Welcome and buenos dias, Rob. <laughs> uh, buenos dias. It is, it's morning here, which is uh, good morning. Uh, or as you say to most people over when you see them, hola. So, hola, Olivia. <laughs> I probably should have started with condolences on your loss from last weekend. Uh, we've moved on, Liv. We've moved on. <laughs> the swans really don't want to talk at all about that. It was so terrible, but um, life goes on. Yes, yes. I'm sure you've moved on quite quickly from the footy grand final. Um, <laughs> I'm sure a glass of Tempranillo at hand helps. <laughs> well, that's right. And... Um, it's lucky you're not talking to my wife, Lynn. She would correct you there because it's pronounced Tempranillo is, um, is, is a very nice drop over here. But there's also seems to be plenty of cerveza, which um, is beer. And you don't have to go to a pub or a hotel to buy it here. You pop a roadhouse or a cafe. Everybody's got um, cerveza to sell in Australia, Mahu, etc. All really big names over here. That sounds beautiful and we could probably spend the next 15 minutes talking about the the veto and the tapas in Spain, but we do want to talk about agriculture over there. I'm sure you've been around the countryside and seen a lot over the fence and have a few observations about the farming in, in around Spain and Portugal. I have lived and I shouldn't make it sound like I'm over here. It is a vacation for Lynn and I, so that's the case, but we have covered a lot of area of Portugal and Spain in the car and, and we tend to get off the main tracks and get around the back roads. And uh, and it's interesting to, to, to observe, coming from an agriculture background, you think of things in that light. Um, one of the first things I think um, is worth noting is that um, Spain is about the size of New South Wales. Um, but it has a population of just under 50 million. So it's, it's a lot more people. Um, and, and in saying it's, got a, it's the size of New South Wales, it's also very similar to New South Wales, a lot of dry um, wheat area. It's, it's interesting. It's on the opposite side of the globe and it's in the Northern Hemisphere, but its latitude, if you can think about it in terms of the Northern Hemisphere, 
has a lot of similarities to where Australia is. And so it's dry in the mid inland. Uh, up in the north, we travelled around the north and it was green. Coming out of the summer, very green, very lush. And then down through the wine areas and then into the Midlands and the south where it's quite dry and a lot of wheat country. But it's important to... Um, Agriculture is really important over here, but uh, like a lot of places, it's it's struggling to um, uh, attract people. Now, the population of Spain is forecast to fall in the next 10 years by four or five million, which is a lot. And uh, and that's putting pressure on regions, as you could imagine. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it sounds like the climate is fairly similar to Australia, rainfall maybe around um, central New South Wales sort of rain. What does that mean for the cropping over in the region there, Rob? Yeah, well, look, the cropping looks very similar um, in terms of, we're looking at stubbles here, of course, they've just finished harvesting. The stubbles look very similar to what we see at home uh, in, in New South Wales, as you say. The paddocks are smaller, though, and I suspect that's a history of smaller holdings. Very few fences. It's, it's rare to see a fence. You know, the, the farms are separated by contours and land, actually, and so you don't see fences. And therefore, you don't see many stock grazing. And we know that Spain has stock, but you see very few of them when you're driving around in the paddocks. Yeah, okay, and so much smaller mobs that are attached to the farms over there and a few cattle. Are there other animal production systems there? Look, on, on the cattle front, there's about 8 million cattle in Spain, which isn't a lot, but you would have expected to see more than what we've seen. So it tells us that most of those cattle we know are in feedlots. Interestingly, the um, dairy component of that is about a million cattle. And, and we haven't seen any dairy cattle, but we do see a lot of dairy sheds. And so uh, you see um, farmers making silage and, uh, and wrapping up hay and then taking it to the dairy sheds and feeding the cattle, which are kept inside. And so it's quite a different model to our grazing systems or our livestock systems where ours are predominantly um, free range, I suppose. Um, that also leads me to another observation, Liv, and that is that with the cropping in the big cropping areas, there are a lot of um, intensive um, livestock sheds attached to the farms. You'll see them scattered around, you know, in quite remote areas where there'll be a, a, a reasonable size shed. It'll contain pigs usually. Um, you know, the story of um, Spain in terms of food is, is quite tightly wrapped up around pork and, and of course, the hamon and the Iberian bacon, but um, it, Spain has um, about 30 million pigs. It's the, um, uh, it's the largest pig-producing country in Europe. Uh, it slaughters about 50 million pigs, and um, it was interesting in talking to people about that. There's also another level of slaughter, which you, a lot of people who have been to Spain would recognise, and that's the suckling pigs, and they suspect that those suckling pigs don't get counted in those numbers, but pigs are really big, and it's been the pork and the poultry industry that's actually expanded a bit here, whereas um, cattle, sheep uh, have contracted. And um, I think when we're driving around, Liv, and seeing these um, uh, mini feedlots on, on farms, it's very similar to what we noted in Pennsylvania in the US, where farmers who are in cropping operations tend to add another um, enterprise to their business. Uh, and and it, it's not the same as as the risk that they have with their cropping. So with cropping, you've got risk of grain prices and and rainfall, but it's it's associated with that um, cropping industry, obviously. And so those feedlots then become a um, another enterprise on the farm, 
Uh, they have a very small footprint, so they don't take up much land, but they also interestingly produce a lot of manure and, um, and compost, which is then used in the cropping programs. So you spoke there, Rob, about some of the, the good outputs of those intensive farming systems, but I can imagine there would also be some concerns about some of the other outputs with groundwater contamination from excess nutrients. Is that a problem that you've been seeing or hearing over there? Yes, it is. And um, it's worth noting that uh, in the past 10 years, the numbers of farmers in Spain have fallen by 70,000. So the same area of farms, but less farmers. So the farms are getting bigger. And uh, those bigger farms are uh, trying to produce more and be more efficient, as, as we know farmers all around the world are. Uh, at the same time, that nutrient waste or the, uh, the compost, manure, call what you like, um, is a challenge. And look, we know that, I mean, it's interesting, you travel around here and you see areas where they have houses that were built, you know, 1,000 years ago. So people have been around here a long time. And... Um, and I suspect that, that uh, those industries that are producing the, the intensive industries that are producing uh, waste that has to be disposed of have just traditionally thrown it out on the pastures. It's, the crops have grown and they've, um, there hasn't been much science to it. But that's causing some problems. There's one area that's noted here where they've got um, serious groundwater problems with nitrogen and, and other um, minerals and um, nutrients getting into the water. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's not so much the regulation push, but there's a push from government to try and help these industries um, build uh, sustainable systems. Uh, and it's also, interestingly, as we know, with you know, the, the climate concerns, that there's, a, there's a, a lot of talk about capturing the, um, the gases from piggeries and you know, managing those um, gases so that we're not damaging the climate. So all that's a challenge, especially when you've got really established industries and, and change is slow, but that's a challenge. I think, though, and you look at the challenges, but you also have to note the opportunities. And I think an opportunity that I want to sort of explore a bit more when I get back with some of our clients is this opportunity of adding value, add businesses to grain operations. There's a bit to be said for that, Liv, because, it, it, as I said before, it diversifies your risk. You might have the same risk to say attached to the, to the uh, new enterprises you would to a grain enterprise. And you, you're also creating the opportunity to build further value without having to, to buy more land. And um, we know the cost of land is, is, has been going up pretty strongly in the last few years. And this might be a way of um, people extracting more value from their farms. Yeah, it's interesting because, as you pointed out, in general terms, Australian farmers diversify by mixing their enterprise with cropping cattle or sheep or by buying in diverse geographies to spread climate and production risk. But we haven't really seen those intensive animal operations alongside cropping enterprises. No, it hasn't. We've noticed in, um, in, in some of the more reliable rainfall areas where, um, you know, more pulses are being grown. Um, we should note also, though, that probably only 25 years ago that we started growing canola and that's now become a really strong crop. Um, one interesting one here is, is one that's being harvested right now and, we've, and there's huge tracks of sunflower, or it seems to be huge tracks, at least, at least where I've been driving, and, and that's grown in the summer. So it's grown on the back of summer rainfall and, and if we are seeing changes in climate and different rainfall patterns, then you know, the, the, the possibility is that we're going to have to look more at crops that will grow on opportunistic rain. So if we get summer rainfall when the ground's warmer, Things like sunflowers can grow. I know um, the crops here look pretty good, and uh, and they're in areas that are very dry. Um, they're not irrigated, 
So, um, you know, the crop does grow in, uh, in dry land areas. One challenge, and I know our farmers will be thinking about this already, one challenge for us would be the fact that we have a lot of um, native birds, so cockatoos and, and galahs and things like that would probably um, pose a challenge for sunflowers. I'm sure they would love them, uh, whereas over here that's not a problem. I know I said I wasn't going to talk about tapas, but I'm going to backflip on that. And let's just switch for a moment to the Spanish consumer. What have you noticed as far as food and consumption trends? Well, there's, um, there's no doubt that um, it, it's like a lot of countries, it's becoming um, you know, more and more cosmopolitan. So you know, the, the food you see in, in restaurants is, is more of the, um, I guess, the general global food. So, so things like lamb and, uh, and beef uh, are more and more being uh, seen on, on the menus. And um, I was looking at, uh, after I saw the statistics in Spain, I had a look at the statistics for Europe and the same trend is happening where, you know, livestock numbers, especially sheep, are in decline. So that gives us an opportunity in Australia to, um, to continue to build on those markets. Um, it's also interesting over here, Liv, that, um, you know, Spain's been through some really tough times over the centuries. Um, whether it was uh, invasions or um, or civil wars or whatever, and uh, and and the people here had to be quite resourceful to survive. And there's no doubt that they make use of every piece of the um, of meat of the animal. So you'll see things like tripe stews and uh, and and pigs ears and snouts and all sorts of things on the menu. Um, they're they're now being considered as as local dishes, more as a uh, not a curiosity, but as a, a tradition, I suppose. But there's certainly a, a growing population here that's becoming very similar to to our people, our young people. Uh, it's also interesting, you know, when we go to a restaurant, we're keen to try and speak Spanish to the people in the restaurant, um, but they're keen to try and speak English because they want to learn English. So there's more and more um, of that um, crossover of populations happening all the time. I'm not sure the same curiosity for tripe exists here, but that zero waste mentality has certainly grown. Yeah, and I think it's worth noting. We were in, we also travelled to Portugal, and um, Portugal's perhaps not quite as fortunate as um, Spain, but Spain is certainly a country that's um, that's moving ahead. Um, it's it's economic activities stronger. Um, Portugal's still got a little way to go. It, it's it's a smaller population, only ten million. But that said, um, P- Portugal is 10 million people in a, in a state, in an area about the size of Victoria. So um, it's hard to come to terms with the, um, the numbers of people that are relying on, um, on, the, on the food producing areas to sustain themselves. But um, over here, uh, it's, it's, quite, <laughs> it's quite dense. I'm sure there are, there are much more densely populated places in the world, but um, it just does remind us that um, the important role Australia plays in providing food to you know, far more people than we have as a population. Countries like Spain and France and Germany um, are all net importers. And, um, and just on the wheat uh, side, even though it's a state, uh, Portugal's the size of New South Wales, a lot of the country is not croppable. Produces about six to eight million tonnes of wheat. Um, but live as, as you would know, and anyone else who's travelled to Europe would know that um, Everybody eats bread over here and bread's on every menu. Uh, so the demand for grains and um, especially flour from wheat seeds uh, is, is strong and, and, and likely to um, continue to, to require countries that have exporting surpluses to, to bulk up 
and, and fill the gaps in demand in these sort of countries. I think the reliance on our global food supply chains has rarely been as front of mind as it is now and definitely seen that shift in focus to food security for many countries. That said, Liv, um, we're also seeing market volatility and uh, you're right about the underlying drivers, the big picture drivers are population and, um, and food security. But the volatility has been quite um, quite stark, especially in the last two months and especially since I've, I've been away, I've been noticing. I think we better focus on that next week. Yeah, I think so. Any news and developments with the war in Ukraine, just see the, the market retaliate and that's been happening in the last week again. So I think you're right, Rob. We'll talk about it next week in more detail. Okay. Well, great to talk to you, Liv, and, um, and all the best. And look forward to seeing you again um, back on uh, Australian soil in a week's time. Sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to another episode of Commodity Conversations. If you're looking for more detailed information on commodity markets, you can head to the Mercado website and pick up a premium subscription, which will give you full access to all our archive of reports, as well as all the fresh analysis as it's delivered and access to our team of analysts. Thanks again. And until next week, take care.